Art of the Ronin, Volume 1 of the Ronin Trilogy. Written and produced by Travis Heerman. Voice talent by Daniel McCarville and Zeus Legion. For more information, please visit TravisHeerman.com. This novel contains violence and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Chapter 14 Behind me the moon brushes shadows of pine trees lightly on the floor. Kikaku The days passed into weeks, and the village returned to normal after the waves of gossip created by Teta's disappearance subsided into a period of quiet mourning. Kanishi sometimes heard whispers of fear as the townsfolk speculated on what could have happened to the innkeeper. A few still refused to accept the story that Yellow Tiger had killed him. It was as if people simply speculated and made up stories because those were more exciting than the truth. Perhaps it was because they never found Teta's corpse. Perhaps it was because Norikage and Kanishi were outsiders. Some still speculated that Teta might be alive somewhere. Did a hungry ghost take him? Did he fall into the sea and drown? Had a trickster fox lured him away? Perhaps he went mad and wandered away. Did someone kill him and hide his body in the forest? Perhaps the whore had killed her master. Idle suspicion thrown at Kiyose was something Kanishi had not expected, and it made him angry. Norikage told him, That is what I was speaking of when I told you how insular these villagers can be. Kiyose is an outsider, like you and me. And worse, she is a whore. I suspected there were some who might blame her. But the weeks passed, and the cool, wet spring became a hot and humid summer. The air thickened, heavy and stifling. The heat did not relent, even at night. Kanishi often awoke in the morning soaked with sweat. Villagers toiled and complained just as they always had. Fireflies danced in the summer darkness. The sea beat against the shore with its unceasing rhythm. Monkeys chattered and screeched in the shade of the tree boughs. Frogs chirped in night-swathed bogs. The rice crop greened and grew, and the plums swelled and ripened on their branches. Kiyose began to swell also. Throughout this time, Kanishi and Norikage watched Chiba and his brothers like falcons. Chiba remained defiant and reticent, but he gave them no proof or even further reason to believe he had anything to do with Teta's disappearance. Then, one day, Kanishi's noon meal was interrupted by a commotion outside his house, loud voices shouting his name. The day was hot and humid. His clothes clung to his back and arms, and the insects had been insistent in irritating him. As he put on his sword... He strode to the front door and slid it open. What is it? he demanded. Standing outside his house were a dozen villagers, men and women, and he noticed that most of the men were woodsmen and carpenters. 
Their faces held the wide-eyed, hesitant look of people expecting to be protected. One of the carpenters stepped forward, a man named Ryu. Kenishi-sama, there has been another disappearance. Gorobe is missing. Kenishi's belly turned into a stone ball. Gorobe was a good man, a skilled carpenter with a kind spirit, and he had helped smooth the way for Kenishi's grudging acceptance into village society. For a long moment, no words come. Finally, he swallowed the lump in his throat and said, Does anyone know where he was last seen? One man said, I saw him two days ago. He went to the inn two nights ago. He said he was going into the forest sometime soon to find a special kind of wood. The forest? Kanishi said. Which direction? The man who had spoken was another carpenter, one of Gorobe's friendly rivals. I don't know. He was working on a very special thing, he said, and said that regular wood would not do for it. What was it? Kanishi asked. I don't know. Kanishi said, Everyone, be calm. I will get to the bottom of this. A voice from the back sneered. That is what you said last time. Another voice said, You brought us this bad fortune. It all started after you came. You have angered the spirits. The kami hates you. Kanishi's shoulders tensed and his jaw clenched for a moment, and his gaze flicked toward those voices, but he was unable to distinguish who had said those things. His ears began to burn. Go home. Norikage and I will investigate, and we will find out what has happened to him. But even as he spoke the words, he felt their hollowness. Go home. His eyes scanned the crowd and met nothing but unpleasant stares. Go home. We will get to the bottom of this. I swear upon my honor. The villagers began to shuffle back to their homes. He overheard some of them speculating about the cause of the disappearances. Was it a kappa? A fox. Maybe it was a tengu playing tricks. He caught many skeptical glances as he waited for the crowd to disperse. Something terrible was happening, and only Kanishi could stop it. There was no one else. He went to the constabulary and found Norikage already deep in thought. He told Norikage the news. I heard them out there, Norikage said. What do you want to do? Go to Gorobe's house and see if we find anything there. Very well. Let us go. The house of Gorobe, the carpenter, was on the outer edge of the village, where he lived alone. He had no wife or living family. His skill earned him a good living in a modest house. Gorobe's workshop was redolent with the rich, earthy smells of wood and oil mixed with the sharp tang of lacquer. Lying in the corner were several similar-looking scraps of wood. All of them looked like abandoned attempts to create a scabbard for a sword. Now why would he be making a scabbard? Norikage wondered aloud. I don't know. You didn't ask him? I did not. Norikage fingered his thin mustache. Who would he make such a thing for? Perhaps he was making the scabbard for you. There are no other samurai in the area. I doubt that he somehow acquired a sword for himself. I know he made many boken for you. Were you friendly with him? 
We sometimes drank his plum wine together after he finished a commission. Perhaps he was making a gift for you, a new scabbard. That scabbard you have was beautiful once, but now it is a bit battered. Kanishi scowled. It is old. It was my father's scabbard. Of course. I meant no offense, Kanishi. But only the blade of a sword lasts forever. Sometimes the hilt and wrappings must be replaced. Look here. A small bag of polished stones and some mother-of-pearl. Perhaps he was going to use them for ornamentation. These discarded pieces of wood are rough. Perhaps he was unhappy with them. They would fit your blade if they were finished. Kanishi nodded. So it seems. He asked about my sword last time I saw him. Asked me to show it to him. And I did. The forest. Is there something in the forest? But there are so many villagers who come and go in the forest. Norikage's brow furrowed, and he rubbed his chin. It could be anything. A robber, a band of thieves, hungry ghosts, tanuki, kitsune, demons, spirits. Ah, so many dangers in the forest. Something must be done. I can't wait for more people to disappear and hope for a clue. I'll go into the forest. I'll be the bait in my own trap. Kinishi, we do not know what could be out there. I'll find out. This bait is not a piece of dead meat. It has teeth of its own. The villagers were afraid to venture out of the village. The farmers should have been tending their fields and gardens, but they were afraid to leave their homes. As Kanishi went back to his house, he received several suspicious and hostile looks from the bolder villagers, especially Chiba and his brothers. Akao fell in beside him as he walked. Even his usually happy face was grim. Trouble. Yes. Something bad. I know. I'm going to find it. Akao stopped and looked up into his eyes. Are you going to fight? Kanishi stopped and looked down at him. If I have to. Not a fighter. I know. You're a hunter. It will be dangerous. Ask me? No. I won't ask you to help me. Fool. Never refuse you. That is why I don't ask. If something happens to me... You must look after Kiyose. What? And raise her pup? Akao laughed. Kanishi could not help but laugh as well. You would be a good father, he said. And so will you. Coming with you. Kanishi smiled. As you wish. When they reached his house, he packed up his bedroll, gathered some food and water, his sword and his bow, and ventured into the wooded countryside. For several hours, he and Akao moved in concentric paths around the village, searching for any evidence of any of the missing villagers, anything unusual, but they found nothing. They once came upon an area that reeked of death, but when they followed the stench, they found only the carcass of a dead deer, bloated and crawling with maggots. Kanishi hoped this was not an omen of things to come.
Norikage sat in his office, rubbing his hands. He thought about the disappearances and the unknowable hostility of the forest, and felt that no good could come to Kanishi out there alone. His dog would help him, but if he met serious trouble. But there was no one else. Norikage knew he himself would have been worse than useless if he had accompanied Kanishi into the forest. He could not fight, only getting Kanishi's way if danger appeared. For that matter, how safe was Norikage in the village with Kanishi gone? Chiba and his brothers, if they were the true culprits, might take the opportunity to enact another mysterious disappearance. He noted well that they had several times walked past the office, looking toward the shuttered windows as if they could see Norikage sitting inside. He, of course, saw them through the slats, and something in their looks made him uneasy. They knew that Kanishi had gone into the forest. Norikage always kept a dagger secreted within his robes, but he knew that he would be pitifully inept if he tried to use it. As the hours passed, he sometimes practiced drawing the dagger quickly, trying to strike in the same movement at some imaginary adversary, and all the while he felt foolish, even though a persistent feeling of impending dread kept building in his belly like a nest of buzzing hornets. Kanishi would say that Norikage's premonitions were the kami speaking to him, warning him of danger. But what could he do? He was not a fighting man. He spotted Kiyose coming toward his office. She was growing thicker around the middle. She looked pale and wan, and Norikage wondered if she was getting enough to eat. She glanced furtively up and down the street, and fear painted her face in broad brush strokes. She too knew that Kanishi was absent. She was startled when he invited her in before she even reached the door. She said, I am sorry to bother you, Norikage-sama. I am too much trouble. Not at all. Come in. It's just that I'm frightened. He nodded. Of course. You can stay here in my office as long as you like. These are bad days. She bowed low, and her voice was soft and quavering. Thank you, Norikage-sama. I am sorry to be so much trouble. In the shadows of his office, she looked even paler. She looked ill. He said, Are you well? She glanced in his direction without meeting his gaze. I am sick much of the time, but Gunta's mother tells me that it is just the baby causing the sickness. Norikage nodded. I can understand your fears with Kanishi being gone. What if something happens to him? The tremor in her voice increased, and he could hear the almost frantic emotions behind her words. If something happens to him, I will die too. Now, there is no need for such talk. She continued as if he had not said a word. Something will happen to me. Chiba will kill me. But maybe that is not so bad. At least then, my child would not have a life of suffering. Suddenly tears burst out of her eyes and rolled down her sunken cheeks. Norikage felt a pang of pity for her. She was so helpless, so downtrodden. Empathy for others was not a common experience for him, 
he was much more accustomed to worrying about his own skin. But her plight touched even his jaded spirit. But even if Kanishi returns, what will happen to me? She said. Her lips quivered with the fear and emotion bubbling out of her. Why had she come to ask him these things? This child could belong to almost anyone. Sometimes I just want to walk into the sea and never return. I cannot return to my family. They would not have me. Norikage squirmed where he sat. He did not know how to deal with matters such as these. Furthermore, at this moment, she reminded him of another fragile waif, a girl doomed to suffer the birth of a bastard child, the child of a careless, selfish young nobleman. But Kiyose was infinitely more unfortunate, because she had no one to care for her. Was she asking for his help? Was she plotting to run away? She noticed his silence and glanced at him. In that instant, he saw in her eyes the reason she had come to him. She trusted him. Norikage's mouth fell open. He considered himself to be among the least trustworthy people in the world, but somehow she trusted him. Even Kanishi did not fully trust him. Kanishi did not know it, but his distrust in Norikage was warranted. Norikage kept unpleasant secrets, secrets that would mean both their heads if they were revealed. For a long time, Kiyose sat there across from him, waiting for him to speak. Finally, she moved to get up. I am sorry, Norikage-sama. I was rude for coming. Please wait, he said, raising his hand. It is good that you came to me, Kiyose. You are special to me. I don't want any harm to befall you. It was her turn to look surprised, and Norikage was inwardly amused. She said, Norikage-sama, you are a wise man. What should I do? The look of helpless entreaty in her eyes moved him. She truly thought he had the answer to her question, as if all of life's implacable questions had an answer. He laughed. Stunned for a moment by his own inadequacy, he laughed. She shrank away from him, and the look in her eyes changed from entreaty to hurt. I'm sorry, Kiyose, please forgive me, he said, still chuckling. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at me. What? What? I am the last person in the world who would know the answer to your question. Her crestfallen look deepened but the hurt in her eyes diminished. It is good not to worry, he said brightly, smiling at her. I'm sure Kanishi will be fine. Shall I make some tea? Of course, Norikage said. She got up and began to prepare the tea. As she did so, he watched the simplicity of her movements and thought about how her situation could be improved. Norikage had enough money left to buy her contract from Gonta and set her free. But not only was he loath to part with such a sum, there were other considerations as well. While she was in Gonta's employ, she would probably have enough food to eat and a roof over her head. But she was his slave. If she was not in Gonta's employ, she would be free, but she would have no place to live and no food to eat and she would still be a fallen woman with a bastard child. 
Perhaps Norikage could keep her as his mistress. He would be grateful for a woman in his house. But then, she loved Kanishi. After she prepared the pot of tea and poured him a cup, he said, I'm afraid we have much time to pass before Kanishi returns. Do you know how to play Go? She shook her head, looking uncertain. Then I will teach you. I have been trying to teach Kanishi lately, but sometimes his skull is quite dense. He flashed her a confidential smile. She smiled back timidly. He looked around his office at the stacks of documents and books, rubbing his chin. Now where did I put that Go board? As the afternoon shadows grew long, Kanishi found himself on the path leading to the pond that he and Kiyose visited a few weeks before, where Teta might have gone to fish. He stood on the path for a few moments, pondering. It was conceivable that Gorobe had used this path himself. A cow stood beside him, nose to the ground. No trail here. No humans for a while. We'll search again, Kanishi said and strode down the path. Night coming. I know. Kanishi glanced down. Akao's hackles stood on end. What is it? Akao said nothing. Are you afraid? The dog looked up at him. Something strange. In the failing light, the looming rock face along one side of the pond was a powerful brooding presence. He had just enough time to make a modest camp a few paces from the water. While he did, a cow prowled the outskirts of the pond's perimeter. Before long, a sharp bark from the far side of the pond echoed over the water. Kanishi moved around the pond, and as he approached the spot, his nose caught the powerful stench of death, more rotten, more foul than he had ever experienced. He covered his nose and mouth with his collar and followed the odor. As he thrust himself between reeds taller than his head, cursing his own noise, he spotted a cow's brownish shape deep in the reeds, pointing toward the water. After he took a few more steps in the failing light, something purple and distended emerged, lying half in the water. Then he saw the human foot, twisted and swollen. He stepped nearer and clenched his teeth against the unbearable stench. The corpse lay on its stomach, knees half curled up under it, its head submerged in the muck. Strangely, the body was naked, and even more sickening, between the narrow purpled buttocks sticking into the air, something red, raw, wet, and distended, looking as if some of his innards had been sucked out through the hole. Kanishi's guts churned, and he tasted the bile rising in his throat, but he clamped his jaws shut like a band of iron. He stepped back, short of breath, allowing the reeds to hide the horror that lie among them. Akao said, Something strange did this. Scent is... wrong. Kanishi could not answer. His breath came in short, painful gasps. When it began to slow, he swallowed the bitterness rising in his throat. Then he drew his sword, sliced a thick handful of reeds, and twisted them into a makeshift rope. 
Stealing himself, he stepped back through the rushes closer to the corpse, moved to its feet, and slipped the rope around the corpse's swollen, purpled ankle, careful not to touch the lifeless flesh. He did not wish to taint his spirit with the touch of the dead. After tying the rope securely, he pulled. The corpse came out of the water with a sickening squelch and a belch of putrid air. He hauled it up onto the bank, flattening a path through the reeds. As he pulled, the corpse rolled onto its back, and he could see the man's face. Gorobe's mouth gaped in a silent death rattle, full of muck, eyes eaten to empty sockets, flesh purple and sagging. Kanishi's guts heaved, and his knees buckled for a moment, but he fought it down and staggered about thirty paces away, trying to regain control of his breathing, waiting for his thrashing innards to settle. Finally, he regained control and turned back toward the corpse. The hairs on the back of his neck rippled erect, putting him instantly on guard. A cow faced the water, a low growl rumbling in his throat. Kanishi took two steps back toward the corpse and spied movement in the reeds near its resting place. Something large squelched and rustled in the tall reeds and dashed back to where the corpse lay. Water splashed, just out of sight behind the reeds, and the tops of the plants still waved with the passing of... something. He parted the reeds and looked out over the pond. Ripples spread toward the water's distant sides. He looked down and saw what looked like two small footprints in the muck. He could not tell the shape of the footprints because they were already filling with water. Another chill trickled down his spine. Something had been standing here, watching them. Can you scent it? Kanishi asked. Watched us? Yes, Kanishi said. It was watching us. The patch of indigo sky shone through the opening in the forest canopy above the pond. The shadows among the underbrush thickened. They sat beside their small fire on the bank of the pond, cooking a small pot of rice for supper. Kanishi's gaze swept constantly over the surface of the water, looking for telltale ripples, anything to indicate the presence of whatever had been watching them. He kept his sword beside him and his bow strung. Three arrows jutted from the earth nearby, ready to be used at a moment's notice. As darkness fell, a cow slunk away into the shadows. Before the dog disappeared into the forest, they exchanged looks that said, Be careful. In spite of his constant vigilance, Kanishi listened with contentment to the awakening of the night creatures around the lake, the frogs and insects and other creatures. Evening birds voiced their mournful cries. On a high branch overlooking the water sat a lone crow, its harsh voice calling out to its comrades that all was clear. As he watched the black silhouette of the crow preening its feathers, Kanishi had an idea. He called out, Sir Crow, excuse me, can I have a word with you? The crow looked at him in astonishment for a moment. Then it called back from its lofty perch. Who speaks the ancient tongue? Who are you? 
What do you want? I know it is late, Sir Crow. Please accept my apologies. May I ask you a question? What for? I don't like humans. Crows were perhaps the rudest of all birds, and as this one had said, they did not like humans. But Kanishi knew they were among the most clever and wisest of all birds, and Takao, his foster father, once told him that they were the messengers of the gods. Would you like some rice? Without another word, the crow leaped from its branch and glided toward where Kanishi sat, landing well out of reach. Kanishi smiled inwardly. Crows were also easily bribed. The crow cocked its head, blinking its beady black eyes. Rice, you say? Is it ready to eat? Soon. Then you may ask your question. But if you lie about the rice, my brothers and I will drive you from these woods. Very well, Sir Crow. My question is this. Is there something living in this pond? What a foolish question! The crow's eyes sparkled with silent, mischievous laughter. Of course there are things living in this pond. Fish and turtles and frogs and insects. Excuse me, Sir Crow. I should have been more specific. Is there something living in the pond that likes to feed upon human beings? The crow glanced at the pond, then at him, then back at the water, then smoothed its feathers. Yes. What is it? You said one question. Give me the rice now. Very well. He got up and scooped a ladle of steaming rice from the pot onto a broad leaf. He laid the small steaming mound at the crow's feet. What a strange creature you are, the crow said. A man who speaks the ancient tongue. Whoever heard of such a thing? It is too hot. The crow pointed to the rice with one of its feet. Wave your wing to fan the rice. Sir Crow, I have one more question. The crow seemed to sigh. Very well. Ask. What kind of creature is it? I do not know that, but it lives in the water. What does it look like? The crow blinked twice, as if it could not understand the question. Bigger than me. Smaller than you. Then the crow gulped its portion down in three great bites. Thank you for your help, Sir Crow. Without another word, the crow flapped into the air and returned to its perch high above the water. By now the light had all but gone, leaving Kanishi with only the light of his fire reflecting from the black, rippling surface of the pond. Stars flicked into view, one by one, like holes pricked in the dark patch of sky. He sat down with his back to the fire, looking over the water, weapons within easy reach. He had no idea what kind of creature might live in the water and prey upon human beings. An oni? He had never heard of an oni that lived in the water. A sea dragon? This was a freshwater pond with no connection to the sea. Perhaps the spirit of the pond itself was evil. The most powerful spirits could take physical form. The night darkened and the moon rose into the patch of sky, casting a trail of silver upon the surface of the pond. Kanishi found himself growing sleepy. It would not be wise to sleep alone beside the pond. He must remain alert, or he might disappear like the others. 
Even if he pretended to sleep, the danger of falling asleep would be greater. And Akao was still in the darkness somewhere, probably watching from a different vantage point. The moon rose higher, and still Kanishi did not move. He fought against sleep with every breath, every blink of his eyes. His eyes seemed to shut of their own volition. Several times he stood up and circled around his fire to force himself awake. But when he sat back down again, his body yearned for rest. Come, monkey boy, said Ka. There is something I must teach you. His feathers ruffled in the stiff breeze that seemed to flow perpetually across the mountainside and grow stronger on sunny days. This was a sunny day in winter, and the air was cold and brittle. Snow swathed the land, weighing down upon the pine branches like a soggy, bitter-cold blanket. The tengu set off down the slope from their mountain perch. The boy pulled his coat of straw close around him and breathed in its dusty, earthy scent. The wind was cold, but in the depths under the forest canopy, it could hardly penetrate. His sandaled feet crunched through the snow as they walked. The birds were quiet today probably huddled against the winter chill. The boy followed his master's quick, steady stride and long legs, and he almost ran to keep up. The afternoon passed, and the boy grew weary, and still they walked in silence. Curiosity burned in him, but he knew better than to ask. His master would explain when the time came. They trekked across the faces of three mountains, into places far beyond the boy's previous explorations. They entered a valley darkening into shadow as the sun fell behind one of the nearby peaks. The air chilled even more, and still the boy wondered where they were going. He was weary, and his feet were numb with cold, the lack of feeling spreading up through his legs. His nose caught a strange moist smell in the air, and wisps of steam or cloud rose beyond a grove of pine trees in their path. The smell was unlike anything he had ever experienced. A bit like the smell of rotten eggs. Ka led him along a narrow, rocky path toward the pine grove and the clouds of rising steam. As they grew nearer, the smell grew stronger. The air grew warmer as well until they passed through the small patch of pines and stood beside a small lake of steaming water, perhaps one hundred paces across at its widest point, nestled in the crook of two mountain slopes. The boy felt the warmth of the water on his face even while standing beside it. The water was clear and calm. Tiny ripples spread across the surface as if created from invisible undercurrents. The shapes of the rocks under the surface wavered and shifted with these otherwise unseen forces. The boy looked at the lake with mixed feelings of wonder and unease. Then the tengu's harsh voice startled him. You do not know how to swim. You must learn. Go into the water. The boy turned to his master. The water is deep. Of course it is deep. That is why you must swim. You will swim across, then you will swim back. The boy stared at the water for a few moments, unsure of what to do. What are you waiting for? 
the boy stepped down the rocks to the water's edge. The water was so clear he saw the rocks and pebbles sloping sharply downward. He took off his clothes, as if he was preparing to bathe, folded them, and left them in a pile on a nearby rock. Except for his meager loincloth, he stood naked and shivering against the winter wind. The warm water seemed now like an inviting place, so he stepped in. He gasped as the water's heat shocked the flesh of his legs. His feet were too numb at first to feel the rocks underneath, but the heat sent a torrent of prickling ice through them. He took two steps, and the water reached his knees. Four steps more, and it reached his waist. Its warmth seeped through his chilled flesh. The invisible currents caressed his skin. A few more steps, and he was immersed in hot water up to his neck. Now, monkey boy, move further into the water. Move your arms like this and kick your legs. The boy watched him for a moment, then began to move into the deeper water. The water rose to his chin until he danced on his tiptoes. Move your arms and legs, fool. You've watched how fish swim. You must do as they do. The boy complied, moving his arms first, then lifting his feet from the rocky bottom to kick them beneath him. To his amazement, his head remained above the surface, and he felt as if he was floating. To his amazement, his head remained above the surface, and he felt as if he was floating, a moment of exhilaration, until he reached down with his foot and no longer felt the bottom beneath him. A jolt of panic shot through him, and he began to sink. He gulped a mouthful of foul-tasting water. He heard his master shouting at him through the water in his ears. Relax, monkey boy! Control yourself! If you panic like an animal, you will die! Something in him knew that his master was right, so he relaxed and slowed his frenzied movements. Magically, it seemed, his head rose from the water again. Look! the boy cried. I'm doing it! Good! Perhaps you will not die after all! his master shouted. As the boy relaxed, able to revel in the sensations of buoyant warmth, small currents under the water rippled across his flesh. Moments later, he noticed that he had moved farther into deep water. Now, swim to the other side. Aim your body toward that pointed rock. The boy turned his head and looked through the wisps of steam rising from the water's smooth surface. A rock jutted from the water near the edge on the opposite side. The rock stood the height of a man, with the sides near the water level painted in strange colors. He felt a burst of exhilaration and confidence as the pointed rock came closer. When he reached the middle of the small lake, the small underwater currents grew stronger. He felt them pulling at his feet, as if his legs were just barely slipping through the grasp of some invisible, watery entity. He ceased moving toward the rock, and looked down through the clear water. He could see the darkness of the rocky bottom underneath him, but he saw nothing around his legs but formless ripples. His master called out to him, What is it? Why have you stopped? Something! A mouthful of water cut off his words as he was pulled under. A fresh bolt of panic shot through him, and he flailed under the water, lifting his face to the air. His head broke the surface for a moment, and he heard his master's voice. Or the lake's water spirits will... 
all thoughts in his mind fell away, leaving him with a desire as clear as the steaming hot water, a desire to fight, to live. His legs and arms pumped and flailed, a gasp of crisp cold air, then under the water again, fighting, kicking, swimming. Water swirled around his knees, caressing, sliding over his thighs, tugging so gently, gently enough to pull his face under again. Then, sharp pain lanced through his toes as they kicked against the stony bottom. The bottom! In an instant, he stopped fighting, gathering his legs under him, and stood up. His head and shoulders emerged, steaming in the cool air, and he stood on the lake bed, gasping for air, wiping the stinging water from his eyes. His master stood on the far side of the lake, watching him passively. The boy looked around him and saw that he stood about fifteen paces from the tall, pointed rock. You are alive, his master called. The water spirits have found you strong enough to survive. You are a strong swimmer. The boy's face flushed and a grin emerged. He had done it. He nearly collapsed with relief. Now, you must swim back. The dream memory flowed away from that long-ago day and through all the days afterward when he returned to that lake and swam back and forth many times, fighting the invisible grasp of the lake's water spirits with every pass. After his first time, he had brought small offerings of rice and fish for the water spirits to thank them for sparing his life. Then, in later dreams, he thought it strange that the steaming lake now had large growths of reeds, and that things were moving through the reeds, parting them with their passage. A rustle from the reeds and the quiet slosh of water jerked him awake. A chill gripped the back of his neck as he realized that he had fallen asleep. He thought he saw the tops of the nearby reeds waving rhythmically, as if something had just passed through, but he could not be sure if the flickering firelight was playing tricks. He cocked his ear, listening for movement, but all he heard was the sing-song chorus of the night creatures in the darkness, who seemed to giggle at his foolishness. His fists clenched. Fool! Falling asleep like that might have cost him his life. Anger and vigilance together were sufficient to keep sleep at bay for the rest of the night. When dawn came, he sat still with his back to the dying embers of his fire, watching the water. As daylight returned, so did Akau. Kanishi asked, Did you see anything? Akau responded with a weary huff. When the patch of dark sky faded to grayness, swallowing the stars, Kanishi stretched his legs and noticed some strange indentations in a bare patch of soft earth just outside the perimeter of the reeds. A pair of strange, blunt impressions, perhaps half the size of his own feet, pressed smoothly into the moist earth, tipped by deep pits that could only have been made by long claws. Whatever left those footprints had been completely out of the water, out of the reeds, approaching him in full view. A shiver of excitement whispered through him, and he looked at the pond again, 
feeling something watching him from concealment. Then an idea came to him. He packed up his belongings and doused his fire. Let's go, he said. Akao regarded him for a moment, and then followed him down the path toward the village. One of Norikage's greatest pleasures was reading the work of the Chinese classical poet Li Hoju. Today it helped him keep his mind off Kanishi's absence. Where was he? Norikage tried to focus on the graceful calligraphy and the eloquent words for the dozenth time when he heard a step outside the constabulary office. He looked out expectantly and was rewarded with a sight he had been hoping for since the previous afternoon. Kanishi, Norikage explained, how good to see you. When you did not return last night, I feared the worst. The young warrior was a bit dirty and tired-looking, but seemed otherwise well. Kanishi sat down across the desk from him, his face taciturn. I think I found something. Truly? Splendid, splendid. What happened? We searched the woods all day, but found nothing. So we went back to the pond where I thought Teta might have gone fishing. When we searched the area, we found Gorobe's corpse, half in the water, hidden in some rushes. It looked as if something had been feeding on it. How revolting! A wolf? A demon? Did you see what it was? Kenishi shook his head. Something that lives in the water. It was watching me. I fell asleep, and it was coming for me, but I awoke before it could reach me. Did you see it? No. It was too fast. Terrible, Norikage said, studying Kanishi intently. The normally stolid, dependable Kanishi looked as if he had seen a hungry ghost. Perhaps acting as live bait frightened him more than he expected. We waited there all night, but it only happened once. You look tired. Go home and sleep where you are safe. Kanishi nodded. I have a plan. We can discuss what to do after you are rested. Very well. With that, Kanishi departed. Norikage was left stroking his chin. If only he had access to a library or a learned scholar who might be able to make sense of Kanishi's tale... Dealing with this problem was bound to be dangerous. Something had almost attacked him. But what was it? His wandering gaze drifted out the window of his office, and he spied Kiyose carrying a large bucket full of water. She saw Kanishi walking back to his house, but he had not seen her. She stopped, and Norikage saw the look of forlorn adoration on her face as she watched him go. She took half a step toward him, then stopped and cast her gaze down onto the dirt. Norikage felt fresh pity for her. She knew she could never have Kanishi all for herself. He felt pity for the child as well, who would be born as both a bastard and a burden. Gonta had not been pleased about Kiyose's condition. He made her work harder now, to make up for the work she would not be able to do after the baby was born. As a result, she spent much less time at Kanishi's house lately. Kanishi entered his house without noticing her presence, and when he had gone, 
she sighed and continued on with her bucket. Poor thing, Norikage said, shaking his head. A few hours later, Norikage sat in his house and fanned himself against the afternoon's thick, wet heat. Kanishi came in, looking rested and hearty, as if he had put his fears behind him. You look much better, Norikage said. We need to discuss what to do. I have a plan, but I need your help. Norikage sat up straight with a sudden tingle of uneasiness. What is it? The thing, the creature. Whatever it is we seek is crafty. I recognize that I could fight against it, unlike poor Gorobe and Teta. It waited until I was asleep to approach me. Therefore, to lure it into the open, we must offer it defenseless prey. But it is fast. Fast enough to move back into the reeds after I woke up. Anything that moves that fast could be upon me before I could get my weapons out of hiding. I cannot be the bait in my own trap. Kanishi's gaze fixed on Norikage. Norikage swallowed hard. But I cannot do it. I would be helpless. That's the point. But I would be hidden nearby to protect you. But I would be in danger. The strength drained out of his arms. If he had been standing up, his knees might have wobbled. I am no warrior. That's why you are perfect. You are a defenseless weakling. A perfect target. Defenseless weakling indeed. I have little strength in physical stature, but... He tapped his forehead sharply. I am intelligent enough to avoid danger. Kanishi stayed calm in the face of Norikage's outburst. He even had a faint smirk on his lips. You have a good head, so you should be able to see the value of my plan. Perhaps it is a good plan, but pick someone else to use as bait. There has to be someone else. Who would you suggest? Kiyose? Kanishi's voice was even, dispassionate. Of course not. Kanishi relaxed a bit. Then who in the village would help us? Norikage shifted uncomfortably. If it is an evil spirit in the pond, could we commission a priest to purify the pond to drive it out? Is it not proper for the village administrator to be present when this threat is dealt with? It would look better on you if you were there, not cowering at home. Are you certain your sword can kill whatever it is? What if it is a spirit? It's not a spirit. It left tracks in the mud and parted the reeds by its passing. I have slain an oni with this weapon. If it can be killed, I can kill it. Somehow. That does not help me feel better about this. Could I not hide with you? Lay in ambush? Kanishi shook his head. You can't sit still for long enough. Sometimes you fidget like a child. You would betray our presence. Have some courage. That's all you need. I will protect you. Norikage began to rub his chin. Let me think about it. There's no time to think about it. I have already wasted half the day sleeping. By the time we reach the pond, the day will be gone, and I must approach the pond in hiding, which takes more time. It must not know of my presence. Norikage sighed. The young man's words had weight 
and sense. He had thought his plan through. Very well. Have courage, you say. Very well. I will have courage. But if you allow me to be killed, I will forever haunt you. He said the last with a smile on his face. But it was only a mask to hide his fear. He still quailed from the thought of putting himself in harm's way. He only hoped that Kanishi's strength and prowess were enough when whatever was in the pond came for him. By nightfall, their ambush was ready. Nestled in a large bush overlooking the bank of the pond, hidden from view by leaves and shadows, Kanishi held his bow with an arrow knocked. From his vantage point about thirty paces away, he watched Norikage sitting beside the small fire, near the spot where Kanishi camped the night before. Akao was not to be left out. He waited beside Kanishi, silent and unmoving as the statue of a guardian fox. His bright eyes scanned the darkness, and his sensitive nose tasted the air. Norikage looked toward the pond every few heartbeats, and Kanishi saw the tightness of controlled fear on his face, in his shoulders. As Kanishi predicted, Norikage could not sit still. He fidgeted with his hands, his clothes, his mustache, and Kanishi watched with amusement. He hummed a tuneless melody, dug small trenches in the soft earth with a dry stick, looked nervously toward the water. Kanishi was pleased, however, that Norikage did not betray his position by looking toward his hiding place. For hours, Kanishi watched him fret and fuss about the campfire, and he also watched the reeds at the water's edge. His ears were cocked for any sound of movement in the water. From time to time, the wet plop of a fish or a frog would spin Norikage about, his eyes wide, almost glowing as they searched the darkness. Kanishi sighed and shook his head. This was not going to work. Norikage was too worried about attack to make himself a good piece of bait. But then, finally, after a few long hours, he seemed to calm himself and lay down beside the fire. Akao rested his head on his paws, his pointed ears still twitching and turning at every sound. The shadowy wall of rushes flickered with orange firelight and pitch-black shadows. The play of shadow and light tricked his eyes, always appearing to be moving, shifting. Norikage rolled onto his side, with his back to the water, snoring softly. But Kanishi's eyes were not playing tricks when a strange face parted the reeds. Two reptilian yellow eyes glowed in the firelight. He had never seen anything like this creature. Its face resembled a strange mix of both a monkey and a tortoise, smaller than a human's, with a broad, flat head. No, not a flat head, an indented head, like a bowl in its pate with a bit of water pooled in the indentation. A crown of glistening black hair ringed the indentation, it had a wide mouth in a snout like a monkey's, two narrow slits for nostrils, and thick, muscular lips parted to reveal a mouthful of thin, needle-like teeth. Was it grinning? 
It dashed into view, moving on two short legs with a quick scuttling walk. Its body was rounded like that of a tortoise walking upright, covered in a mottled green shell. But despite all the features of a tortoise, the creature still left the impressions of a monkey as well, with its incredible quickness and its cautious, furtive movements. Scuttling up the bank, it snatched Norikage's foot with a scaly, monkey-like paw. Norikage awoke with a startled yelp. Before Kanishi could even draw his bow, the creature had dragged the constable halfway to the water. Norikage squealed. Kanishi drew his bow and released just as the creature disappeared into the reeds with its prey. The arrow flew into the foliage and disappeared but Kanishi heard it strike home with a sound like hitting a tree. Then, Norikage was jerked out of sight into the reeds, shrieking in terror. Dark, murky waters splashed and sprayed. Norikage's cry silenced with a gurgle. Kanishi lunged from his hiding place, leaving his weapons behind. A sword and bow would be useless in the water. He tore through the reeds into pitch blackness. The vegetation shielded the water from the light of the fire, and the moon had not yet risen. He followed the thrashing noises and dived in, churning toward the sound. He dived under the surface, groping in the murky blackness. Suddenly, a warm hand clamped onto his forearm. He grasped the wrist and hauled toward the surface, kicking feverishly. A powerful tug jerked both of them back toward the bottom. He pulled hard, feeling Norikage struggling as well, but the other man's movements were weakening. Then suddenly, the pull on Norikage disappeared and Kanishi dragged him up. They both gasped and choked as they broke the surface, sucking in sweet night air. A painful, steel-hard claw gripped Kanishi's foot and dragged him under, toward the bottom of the pond where it could drown him and feed upon him at its leisure. He groped for the paw holding his foot, his hand clamped around the creature's small, rock-hard arm, squeezing its thick, scaly flesh. He wrenched its grip from his foot, but the other paw clenched around his wrists. For an eternity, the two combatants blindly struggled in the blackness, tearing away grips and finding new holds, grasping, striking. Kanishi's chest began to burn. More than once, the feathered wooden shaft of his arrow embedded in the creature's shell brushed against him. His strength was fading, but his enemies seemed inexhaustible. He pummeled his fist uselessly against the creature's iron-hard skull, his fingers gouging for a soft place to cause pain. Then his clawing fingers dug into the indentation on the creature's pate, gripping, squeezing. Through his fingers he felt the creature stiffen and convulse, and suddenly he was free. For an instant, he considered pressing his advantage, but his breath was gone. After a last clenching squeeze to the ridge of the creature's indentation, he kicked back toward the surface. It seemed he would never reach blessed air again before his lungs burst. But then he exploded upon the surface, gasping for breath, thrashing for the shore. He glimpsed Norikage's silhouette standing in the shallows, dripping, wringing his hands, his wide eyes gleaming in the near darkness. Norikage's hand on his wrist dragged him toward the shore. Akao dashed back and forth behind him, barking and snarling and whining. 
In moments, they were back on solid land, streaming water. Kanishi bent over, hands on his knees, gasping for breath. A cow jumped upon him, barking and laughing, tail thrashing like a miller's flail. Alive! Kanishi choked out a quick reply. Yes, I'm alive. The dog spun once in a circle, tail wagging with such frenzy that the dog's hindquarters shook. Norikage said, Are you injured? Kanishi shook his head. It is good that you're a strong swimmer. Kanishi nodded. I've always been a good swimmer. Do you know what that was? I think it was a kappa, Norikage said. Yes, a kappa. My teacher sometimes spoke of them. He said they were... Excuse me, sirs, said a strange, sibilant voice. Kanishi, Akao, and Norikage whirled toward the voice and stared at the creatures standing just outside the reeds about ten paces away. Akao snarled and bared his teeth, but a whine tinged his voice. It stood with its small, clawed hands clasped humbly before it, standing as high as Norikage's chest. Kanishi's arrow still protruded from its back. You have defeated me. Its voice was high-pitched, like a child's, with a disquieting hiss. I apologize for my attack. If you would be so kind as to remove your arrow from my back, I swear I will leave this place and never trouble you again. My arms are too short, you see. Norikage and Kanishi looked at each other, then at the creature. Its mottled reptilian eyes were impossible to read. Finally, Kanishi managed to speak. Are you a kappa? He stood and faced the creature. I am a kappa. Very well. I will pull out the arrow. He bowed low, politely. The kappa bowed as well, spilling the water from the indentation on top of its head. When it straightened, its eyes widened, its shoulders slumped, and the corners of its mouth turned pitifully downward. Drat, it said. It seemed deflated somehow. Kanishi circled warily behind it, braced his foot against the smooth shell, grasped the arrow with both hands, and pulled. The kappa hissed in pain as the arrow came out, the tip smeared with dark red blood. Kanishi backed away. Now, keep your promise. You swore an oath to leave this place and never trouble us again. Go. The kappa nodded forlornly, sighed, then trudged off into the darkness of the forest. They watched it until it was out of sight, lost in the shadows of the trees and undergrowth. When it was gone, Norikage said, What happened? I missed something. It was planning to attack me when I attempted to pull the arrow out. Akapa's bite is venomous. But it swore, when I was a child, my teacher told me that Kappa are polite, but treacherous creatures. Its offer was a ruse meant to draw me near enough that it could bite me. So then why did it not bite you? Because, when a kappa loses the water from the indentation in its head, it loses its power. Only then was it truly defeated. You tricked it! Kanishi said nothing, 
walking toward his former hiding place to retrieve his weapons. Kenishi, I underestimated you, I think. Kenishi shrugged. Now I think the village is truly safe. Akao's tail wagged again. He had not taken his eyes from the spot where the kappa disappeared. The dog padded toward the spot, sniffed the ground once, then looked into the forest and gave one last triumphant bark as if to say, And don't come back! Thank you for listening to Heart of the Ronin, Volume 1 of the Ronin Trilogy by Travis Heerman. Volume 2, Sword of the Ronin, and Volume 3, Spirit of the Ronin, are available now on your favorite audiobook platform. Please visit TravisHeerman.com, look me up on social media, or send me an email. I would love to hear what you think about the story. <laughs>